right. First question. How much money did you make last year, Stevie? (laughs) (laughs) What artists are you looking at right now? (laughs) What are your current offers? Uh, All right. So how do we begin? How do you do this? Um, Well, yeah. So anyone who's listening, this is our first podcast. Hello. Hello. Thanks for listening. Um, We are called... Send your demos to table five. How do we come up with that name, Smith? How do we come up with that name? Well, this is a fun story. I remember us sitting, well, A, let's give credit where credit's due. Shitty A&R, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great little Instagram. Made fun of Soho House. And then I made fun of Soho House. And then you told me you love sitting at Soho House. So you come to LA, we go to Soho House, Obviously. and just make fun of each other. You had a quote-unquote concussion, and oh my god, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, I had a car yeah. crash in LA. You what? I I had a a literal car crash in LA. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't even your career. <laughs> well, that's what I mean, yeah. No, it wasn't a metaphorical car crash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then we were just joking about people that, you know, a lot of music execs that spend a lot of time just sitting at Soho House. Yeah. Uh, working at Soho House. And then we came up with the joke, send your demos over to um, Table 5. Yeah. Soho House is the A&R hotbed. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think with this podcast, um, I think for, for us, it was actually an opportunity to speak to lots of different people in the industry um, and learn about what they do and learn about the different areas. But also for anyone who is interested in listening, uh, the same thing. There's obviously many different facets to the music industry. And, you know, obviously we have a label perspective. Uh, we work in A&R, but, um, you know, we, we're going to be speaking to managers and songwriters and producers people who work in digital marketing. Uh, I don't know. I mean, all areas of the industry to, to get their perspective and, and, and to hear their story of how they got into music as well. Yeah, I think that's, you know, we, we had this idea for this podcast at this point, probably almost a year ago. Um, and I think COVID almost acted as a catalyst of us, you know, it gave us the opportunity to finally sit down and do this. And also, I think everyone's... Um, hungry for some sort of human connection and this podcast was a great way for actually us to keep in touch with a lot of our industry friends and and catch up with them but and also hear stories that we might not have the opportunity of doing so uh, yeah so we we've obviously been talking about doing this for a while but then now that we're in quarantine it seems like a better time than ever to do it yeah it's funny because we we met in new york we kind of had a bit of a world tour between us Met in New York. Um, we have actually. Yeah. Hung out in Austin. Hung out in LA. Well, it's not really a world tour. Is it a US tour then? A US tour, yeah. Yeah. And uh, just got along really well. What was your first impression of me when, you, when we met in 2016? I thought you were fucking cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You reminded me of... Uh, Paul Scholes, the football player. 
if Peter Crouch and Paul Scholes had a kid, it would be you. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, we, of course, have, you know, uh, a mutual artist we both work with, which is Ling Ying. Yeah. And she just raved about you for the whole year. Um, and I was excited to meet you. And, and yeah, you lived up to... Uh, lived up to it. It was definitely a very uh, New York moment. We're what at the the rooftop at the was it the standard? The standard, yeah. Standard penthouse. Yeah. Uh, party for that showcase and uh, yeah. That's where we met. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ha, ha, that was a while ago. That was 4 years ago. Yeah, it was. We must have been there for Mount Wolf for playing a show. Or was it 2017? Maybe it was. So it would have been three years ago. Yeah, that, that makes more sense. sense. Yeah, I, rec- I think you played a show the next night and you were coming into town or something. It was right around South By. Yeah, we played at, we played at Soho House, <laughs> funnily enough. <laughs> Who did, um, did you play with anyone famous? Uh, I actually, have I told, have I told you this story? <laughs> No, which one is it? This is, this is quite a good one. Um, so we, we ended up hanging out with Jose Gonzalez. <laughs> like it, was, it was one of those moments where um, I saw him at the bar and, I, I, and he had really big hair and I couldn't, I couldn't work out who it was. And th- there was actually an actor that we were hanging out with called Ben Barnes, who was at Soho House. And I thought, that, I thought that Jose Gonzalez was an actor. And I said to Ben Barnes, is this, is this guy an actor? I, I really recognize his face. And he was like, no, I've never seen him before in anything. So I was like, who is this guy? And then, um, and then, and then I, I think someone came up to me and they were like, oh my God, Jose Gonzalez is over there. And so I was like, oh shit. As soon as, I, as soon as I found out it was Jose Gonzalez, I went up to him, of course. And, you love uh, going up to people. Sorry? You love going up to people and yeah. saying hi. Well, and then he was kind of on his own, so it was quite, it was quite handy, really. And then we got a drink. Uh, oh, that's interesting. So Ben Barnes. You were yeah. hanging out with Ben Barnes, who's a six-foot-one Capricorn, born on August 20th. Wait. That was in uh, Prince Caspian in the Chronicles of Narnia film series, Logan yeah. DeLoss in Westworld, and Billy Russo in The Punisher. Is that him? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I knew that off the top of my head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just remembered that he was a Capricorn. Yeah. Actually, I don't even know people born in August are Capricorns. Is that right? Uh, well, apparently. So, yeah, so that was 2017. Well, we, we, you were in management. I was still in management then, yeah. So, what? When, did you, when did you first get into music? What, what year was it? What year did I get into music? Uh, so <clears throat> my mom thought it was a great idea for me to take organ lessons. Yeah. You know, on the far back. That sounds like a good idea, to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I started taking organ lessons when I was like seven or eight. Yeah. Uh, and in all honesty, absolutely shite at it and hated it. Um, and then decided I wanted to learn how to play the guitar when I was like 13. Did yeah. that. Played in a band from when I was 14. And then from that, ended up working at a record store in, uh, when I was 
15, 16, I think 16. Yeah, so pretty much always wanted to work in music, always wanted to be an A&R. I remember buying records as a kid and reading all the liner notes, and that's how I learned about bands and people at labels and what an A&R is. And I mean, this is pre, pre, pre-Wikipedia, pre a lot of tools that I uh, used to learn things from. Um, was this pre-Napster? This was probably peak Napster. Right. Yeah. This would have been it. Yeah. 99. Um, the treble year when United. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> A great year overall for everyone. <laughs> um, played in bands and then met a couple of dudes from a label in California. I came out to university, ended up interning at a label in California and pretty much every job I've had since then can connect me back to this label that I interned at when I was, um, when I was 18 and crazily enough, my now wife, her brother nearly signed to that label almost 10 years ago. Oh, really? Crazy small world. Yeah. What, uh, when you were working there? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. He had left his band and went solo, and I remember hearing a lot about his name back then when I was 18 um, and how he was coming in the office. And, and yeah, he nearly, he was very close to signing that deal, who, strangely enough, that label folded and the entire catalog went to Sony. Uh, yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's a cr- crazy small world. So when you were... Uh a teenager and you were in a band you wanted to be an A&R guy over being in a band yeah I think I realized early um, that I was absolutely shite at music and playing music and my band that I played in was horrendous literally one of the worst bands I've ever heard in my life Uh, so I think I quickly realized you know keep in mind this was me in Singapore you know furthest thing away from the music industry I'm not going to have a profitable career in this. And um, the joke that I say is like, I, I knew at that point that um, that 15 to 20% of someone else's talent was going to make me more money than 100% of mine. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> it was in that moment I realized that this wasn't for me. So yeah, and that, that's how I that's how I started working in music and wanting to be in music. And was it quite intimidating? Um, been living in Singapore and like, did you know anyone who works in music? I mean, I met this, this label people and I literally just had their name card and that's how this all started. Um, and interned with them. My second internship in music was at the two partners at that label had split up and one of them had sort of different label. And I interned with him. That was my second internship. And that was, you know, that was 2009, 2010. Uh, and it was a very small, tiny label. It was a subsidiary of another label called Hopeless Records. And this imprint started, signed, the first release we put out was an artist named Andy Schaff, who's now gone on to incredible things. Um, and uh, that label folded soon after. I bumped into the Hopeless guys at South By. 
at the Pure Volume House while the limousines were playing. Um, and they realized that I had grown up in Singapore and I was, you know, I just finished uni, my visa was up, I was on the verge of moving back. And they were looking for a label manager in Asia. And I knew, look, I'm an Indian citizen. It's very hard to get a work visa in the US. Anyone can get an entry level music job. It's very hard for me to try and get that um, and try and get all the paperwork sorted for that. So I knew at that point, okay, it's going to be impossible. Let me go back and create some sort of value. And when the right opportunity comes, I, I know I can pivot into the music industry back in the States at some point. When I don't know, but I, I, in my gut, I knew that was my trajectory that I wanted to be in. Um, so I moved back to Singapore, worked in an ad agency for a year, started doing hopeless records, kind of, you know. What works as an ad agency? Yeah, we're, did I never tell you this? Advertising. Yeah. Yeah, I did the same thing. Did it? you? Yeah. No way. For a year what? as well. What, what agency? Uh, it was, a, it was a, like a qualitative market research company uh, in London called Firefish. And we used to work on, uh, well, Sainsbury's was one of my big clients, um, Unilever and, I don't know, Budweiser, all sorts of different things. But we worked with ad agencies on their adverts and things like that. But I did it for a year as well. Yeah, that's funny. I, I, did, I was doing social media for a company that was on, under the Grey Group, so WPP, um, and did that for about, I think, 14 months, actually, was the, by the time I quit. Um, it just wasn't for me. I think I always wanted to be in music and yeah. realized advertising wasn't for me. I was fortunate enough at that point where Hopeless had grown to a point where I was getting other labels and managers and artists asking for my advice in Asia um, and realized, okay, there's a gap here. I ended up actually working at a label called Loved Our Records right after I left the ad agency, which was a Hong Kong-based distribution company. So my first week on the job was Mumford & Sons' second album, doing marketing for that for Asia. Okay. Um, yeah. And that was a really... That was, that was a really, really good year. I, I was at Loved Our, I think, for now. That was another year, um, and that was really good too. It it was a very steep learning curve in how music was, and I learned from Tommy, who was a CEO and had been running Love Dog for, you know, at that point twenty twenty five years, doing everything from Excel to PS to kind of just being everyone's label, like distribution company in Asia, and and that was, I, I really enjoyed that. I, I learned a lot from that. I think Tommy and I had butt heads for certain things. I think I'm definitely opinionated when it comes to certain things. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I think it's funny because he, he told me then, he was like, look, you should... He, he fired me and said, look, your value is more suited going to work for an American company and trying to do music there, um, was what he told me. And I, and I never had hard feelings towards Tommy. I think, I, I think we, knew, we knew that then. And uh, Tommy and I still talk a lot. Um, so I owe a lot to him and he's always been a great guy and, and has always been very supportive. So, uh, left that. And at that point I'd started a company called secret signals that was kind of doing label press and marketing throughout Asia. Cause I realized that was the gap. So who did you, uh, who did you start that with? With two business partners, old friends actually, um, at that point. And actually one of them, I interned at. So the record store that I worked at when I was 16, yeah. the, 
my boss then was now became my business partner in this new venture. Right. Uh, Did you have the idea for it and then get, get the other two guys involved? Yeah. So I was at, I remember it was me and my business partner, Esmond. We were sitting at a McDonald's. It was 1 a.m. sometime in like, I think it was like September. And I remember him turning to me and saying, I'm never going to work in music again. And that was him like quitting. And I went home that night thinking, I'm going to find a way to make sure that Esmond never leaves music. So I started this company. And and that's how Esmond has now been roped into music for the rest of his life. What was he doing? Uh, so he kind of, he's my, at that point, he was running a couple of other things, but he's sort of the, he oversees a lot of the back end um, and the admin side at, the, at, at Secret Signals. Um, and then we have another partner, Edwin, who kind of handles a lot of the day-to-day stuff um, and runs that. We have another, uh, another person, Audrey, that works there as well, another colleague. Um, who does who, who who heads up stuff with with um, Edwin? So yeah, that company's still going. It's now in its sixth year, I think, at this point. Um, and then I moved over to Network and to LA in 2015. How did that happen? So I met Tom Gates in Singapore in 2012, um, and we sort of just through a mutual friend named Dan Gordon, actually. Dan books a bunch of shows in, in Singapore um, and kept in touch. And out of the blue one day, he was like, hey, do you want to come work in management? Come do day to day. And I was like, yes, I always knew I wanted to move to the States. But like I said, I always wanted to be the right opportunity. And I felt network was that right opportunity at that time. So moved over. How did that come about? Though? So he just met you in 2012 and then, and then suddenly in 2015... He says, do you want to come and work as a manager? We kept in touch and just went back and forth. Uh, just, just normal, you know, kind of like what we do. Just like we just chatted whenever. Right. Uh, and yeah, out of the blue, I got an email asking that. Um, and then we went through all the paperwork and visa stuff. And then I joined Network on March 9th, 2015. Yeah. So moved to LA, worked in management for three years. It was a Good run, you know, working with worked with Mike Posner and had that I took a pill and I beat the run, which was really exciting. Um, was it a, was it a big deal moving to LA at the time? It was, yeah. It definitely was. I, but it was also it was also something I knew that was happening and coming. Um, so I knew it was the right step for my career and I knew I had to do it. Um, yeah. So you weren't so, intimidated? You know? No, not at all. I think I knew I was in a position where I wanted to learn and I knew this is where I needed to be. Did you have any friends in LA? I did, yeah. And, you know, I was fortunate because of how Secret Signals had been running. I had a lot of contacts from that and a lot of friends from that. Um, So slotting into LA was actually really, really easy Um, for the most part. I think it was, it took me a while to get up to speed with work. I think, especially on Imagine Sound, I think it's just such a different level from other aspects of the music industry. Um, so I think the first year I was definitely shit and I'm sure my bosses will tell you that. Um, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was a really good learning curve and I learned a lot from, from working with Tom and Ryan at that point. And i working with, you know, we were part of Grammy run Posner. We had Christina Perry. We had a band called shade, uh, a band called good old war. 
um, yeah, it was it was a good good run and enjoyed that. And then Terry pretty much said, "Look, you're gonna be really frustrated if you continue in management, aka you're a shit manager." I knew that. Um, <laughs> so you were working there for three years, and you felt like you weren't that good at it. No, and to this day, I can tell you, I'm still shit at it. It, it just, for me, there was so much, you know, I really enjoy the creative side of things. I, I enjoy that element of working with an artist. Uh, I, it, it's funny, it was like the more, I think I've always been very much the big picture. And, you know, going from being an, like starting a company and heading things up to going into management sometimes doesn't work as well and especially work on a team like my mindset had to change for a lot of things um it just very you know a lot of the stuff that i was doing was i was just used to being in control of more things Mm -hmm. um and i think going into management there's so many moving pieces that things get out of control very quickly um and a lot of things are out of your control sometimes too so it's it's all that 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 makes it for me it just didn't work personally i think um so terry knew that i would do better in a and r so here i am now in a and r and network so he he basically just said to you, you do you want to do a and r and you were just like yes yeah damn right yeah <laughs> I, yeah uh, I, I had a new offer in front of me for this new job and that was it but so you, 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 you weren't trying to sort of uh, leverage for that yourself? No. I, I, no. I didn't even come across my mind, in all honesty. In fact, there was a different conversation that was happening about another role that I thought I could go into just with my international background that, that was discussed. But um, um, no, not the NRO, which was a pleasant surprise and something, like I said, I've always wanted to do. Did, was this after you'd brought Linying in? Yeah, this was after. Right. So maybe that was maybe that was one of the reasons. Yeah, and you know, Network only has four A and R's at the company, so it's not a big team when it comes to that. Considering we have almost seventy, eighty artists. So Terry the- must have seen something in you. Yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to figure it out, but uh, but yeah. Yeah. And then how different, how different was working in A&R to management? Yeah, it's, it's really different. And I think, it's, it, I think personally it just allows me to work on my strengths and my weaknesses. What are your weaknesses? Everything else. <laughs> okay, what are your strengths? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I, from an A&R perspective, I've always viewed my philosophy as allowing the artists to be as comfortable as they can be in the creative process um, and allow them to create the best music that they can and they're kind of fulfilling their potential. So I think that's something I do well. I'd like to think so. Um, And I think it's that, you know, I've always said that personal development and, and, and artist development go hand in hand. So I think I'm a good personal person. Um, and just treat them like humans. And uh, yep. yeah, I think that, that's part and parcel of it. Um, and I think a lot of it's also, you know, we're not an A&R team that's trying to change someone's sound. We're just trying to help it evolve and, and kind of fulfill their goals. 
as well. And how do you do your job as an A and R? What's like? How do you scout for bands? Um, yeah, different ways. It, it's funny. Uh, a lot of people actually send me music, um, and I send music around to a lot of people. So it's very much a word of mouth and kind of trusting people and contacts around you, and also going through the spotify process you know i'm sure it's something very similar for akira and just being able to resonate but i think the most important thing is getting along with those people um on a human level and also making sure the goals align too you know i think i'll have to look at if as an artist it the goals of the artist aligns with the strengths of the company the strengths of myself as an a and r um and you know if that's if that's a recipe for success or not is is a part of what I look at as well. So, you know, sometimes you meet artists that feel like this could be really good. The goals don't align. The vision doesn't align. Um, or, you know, I, I've walked into meetings and I just don't get a good, you know, me and the manager just doesn't connect. There's no point in me trying to work this. Like everyone's just going to get frustrated. Um, yeah. And I've walked away from deals like that. So it's, that's sort of the, the other side of things you look at as well. What's, what's the most difficult part of your job? That's a good question. I think there are a lot of more frustrating elements of my job than they are. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it's more frustration than difficult per se. I think there are certain elements where, you know, I, I think artists are very precious with the music sometimes. And mm-hmm. a lot of that, is out of your control. You know, I think some artists find it very hard to let go of music or are just so precious about it that they don't want to put out, put it out. And that, that sort of uh, affects their career. So I think that to me sometimes is the most difficult aspect of it when it's out of my control. What, when, so what are you saying when, when an artist doesn't want to release music? Correct. I don't know if I've really had that before. You, you haven't had an artist that's like, I don't think I'm done with this song and I still want to tinker with it. And you're like, yo, you've been, you've been spending a lot of time on this song. Like, this song's done. And uh, right. Sort of. I, I'm usually on a similar level, I think, where, well, first of all, if they're not happy with it, um, I don't really want them to release it. Hmm. And secondly, I usually, I usually agree with them on the fact that it's probably not finished yet. And then we try and think about what we can do to, to finish it. Sometimes they just, that can be frustrating when they just push it to the side and you're like, but this could be so good. Yeah. And they sort of shove it. Um, yeah. Definitely. And for, whatever, for whatever reason, they can't, they can't work it out. Um, I think one of my biggest problems is, is, is an artist really liking a song and then me having to tell them that I don't think it's as good as their last song or, or I don't think it's going to do that well. Do you, do, do you get that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think a lot of artists, it's like the last song that they wrote is their favorite song. Um, and mm-hmm. sometimes that's, that's definitely an issue yeah it's it's definitely something that that does happen but you know i think it's it's trying to understand why you know i i the part of the a r process is building trust right and it's the same with your artist that when you're at that point 
there's been a lot of trust built where they're listening and it's a conversation and it's not as black and white when it comes to it. Um, yeah. There's an element of trust in that, that you, um, that you kind of come to that process. I think that, 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 that shitty A&R thing where after an artist submits an album, he, he says, uh, needs one more song. It's always one more song. <laughs> Which translates but, to this one sucks. But it but, also, I mean, like, you know, I, I don't know if it's the case so much, but you constantly hear about that single or that first song that kind of breaks an artist in, in an album was the last song that they wrote. Uh-huh. I, I actually watched a Clive Davis documentary recently and he seemed pretty comfortable with, with telling artists like, you know, there's no singles here. Um, so I've, I've, I've become a bit more comfortable doing that. And I think I've become better at doing it. I think sometimes just being honest, because I used to just go, you know, beat around the bush. And I think if you're just direct with it, sometimes it, it, it is better. If you just say, I don't think there's any songs here which are going to, make a huge impact and you you need one you need at least one song on every release that that does that ideally otherwise it's a bit of a waste of time that's my opinion yeah absolutely but i i guess it's also what is the end goal like are you trying to have a radio smash out of this song like there's certain no. songs that may not sound like a single but fits very well into the streaming strategy or might fit well into a potential sync opportunity or things like that um, and it's understanding that, you know, so I've, I, I mean, I've never even really thought about radio because radio seems so far, like to actually have a smash at radio for the kind of music that I'm, that I'm working on just seems so, uh, impossible because, because radio, I mean, Holly's been listening to radio one while we've been at home. They play, they play like as much throwback music on radio one as they do new music. And I've got to say, the new music that they're playing is, uh, is not very good. I'm like, where is all the... Wh- why are they not playing good new music? Where is it? Like, it's just... It's, it's got to be like... I don't know. I don't know, what, I don't know what they're aiming for, really. <laughs> but it doesn't... None of my artists have ever been playlisted at Radio 1. Um, so I, 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 I guess I'm thinking about streaming, press... But then press is a difficult one as well. If you're not ticking certain boxes, then you might not necessarily have a success at press. But I, I, would, say, I would say if I can't see a song working at any of the platforms, radio, press, Spotify, or you know, streaming, um, I think if you rely on sync, if you think, yes, this is gonna do really well at sync, then that's not a good position to be in. Absolutely. I've thought that about so many songs and then they, and they've never, they've never done anything at sync. I mean, so, I think we have both had a scenario when a manager thinks that this album's going to have a sync and is trying to get more money out of the deal. And you're just like, you, you don't know. That's literally a shot in the dark. Like yeah. no one knows this. Like if you're no. going to get a sync or not. And it's just, it, I mean, I get it. I understand why they're trying to build that conversation, but at the same time, it's such, you know, we, we call it, we call it the sync fairy because you don't know when you're going to get blessed with a sync or not. Yeah. I quite, I quite like that. Actually. I quite like that term, the sync fairy. Well, let's jump into you, Stevie. I find you very 
interesting. Uh, tell me how you got into music and, you know, you've had a lot of success with Mount Wolf and then you pivoted into this incredible brand that is now Akira Records that is known globally in what you amassed. How many streams do you do that you remind me on a daily basis? Talk us through that. Well, I was, I was a bit different because I always wanted to be a musician rather than an A&R. I, di- I did know what an A&R was and I thought it was quite a sexy job, but I, I've, you know, first and foremost wanted to be an artist. So when I, fir- when I went to university, I was, in, I was in bands in Guernsey, similar situation to you. It felt a million miles away from, you know, the music industry. I didn't know anyone. But, yeah, I don't think my band was very good, but I, I started putting on events and things like that in Guernsey, so I gained some experience doing that. It was a lot easier promoting events in Guernsey than it was in London, I found out when I first arrived in London. I would just hand flyers out at school, and loads of people would turn up, and I was like, oh, this is pretty easy. But, yeah, I went to, I went to university in Nottingham, and I thought I was going to get into a band, but I didn't. Um, I, just, I just sort of started playing the acoustic guitar in my uni dorm rooms, and then after I finished university, I went to a music college in London called Point Blank, which is where I met Bassie from Mount Wolf. And it took us a while to sort of get going with the band. I think, we were, I think we were writing together for like a year and a half before we, before we ever actually... We had, we, had a, we had a different band name at the beginning. And then we did the classic thing of uh, writing a song that we thought was much better than all the other songs. And then we changed the band name. Um, that was Life Size Ghost. We put Life Size Ghost online, and of all the time that I've ever been in bands, this song reacted in a way that no other song had ever reacted with amongst any of my friends or, or anything. And it, and it became, it uh, did really well on the music blogs. And back, back in like 2012, um, there would just be loads of grassroots music blogs who would write about songs. Can we play a clip of it on our podcast? Yeah, we sh- we should play a clip of it. Okay. All right. Yeah, we put that song online and it, and it started 
gaining traction on the music blogs. Um, we actually got a remix done by a guy called Catching Flies, who is a very good producer in, in London. I think it was the first thing he ever did. Um, and it went on Majestic Casual. His remix went on Majestic Casual. And then that went to number one on Hype Machine. And that brought a load, of, a load more hype around the original song. And it just became this kind of thing in 2012 where it was just like, we just suddenly got a load of hype. And, um, and then we, re we released an EP and we started selling out shows in London. And again, that was... And so the first show we played Kulska Studios was like 280 capacity. And I remember there was a lot of people that I knew at that show. And then we did a show at XOYO, which is 500 capacity, like three or four months later when we were releasing another EP. And I remember that was the first time that I remember looking out at the audience and just being like, who are these people? Like, yeah. what? what's going on here? Um, that sort of continued, that momentum continued for a year. And it's like nothing that I've ever, I still haven't really experienced anything like it in terms of any artists I've worked with in terms of selling out shows in the way that we were doing it. Um, we then played Union Chapel and we sold that out. Um, and by the end of the year, we played Heaven, um, which, is a, which is like 800 people. So it was, it was pretty phenomenal. And there was a lot of hype and, and we were just ready to sign a record deal um, and, a, and a publishing deal. And then our singer left. So then for me at that point, I was just like, you know, I, 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 was, I think I was probably depressed actually, thinking, thinking back because um, I was on this runaway train and then it was just, it just stopped. Everything stopped. And, and then in the music industry, you kind of feel like everyone's your best mate. And then I started going out to, because in the meantime, while, whilst doing this, I was promoting gigs and things like that. And uh, I just felt like there was a, a real difference. People would sort of blank me who, who previously were my best mate and all that kind of stuff. So for that, yeah, that year was, was, was pretty shit really. It was just, I remember, my, I remember going back to Guernsey and my parents being like, are you going to get a job then? And I was like, no, <laughs> you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna stick to stick it out with this music thing. I had actually started Akira. Uh, I, I started releasing music whilst I was in Mount Wolf because I was a promoter like throughout all of this and I, and I kept discovering uh, artists and I thought I had a good sort of ear for, you know, I thought someone was good and then they would go on to do other things. So I kind of thought, right, I need to, I, it was just a hobby at that, at that point. I was just like, I'll just start this label, see what happens. And then when, when Matt Wolf split up at the end of 2013, that's when I really threw myself in, back into the label and, and was like, right, I'll, I'll make, you know, this can be my job. And we, like, Fourier were the first real success that I had. It was, just, it was just as streaming was happening. It was sort of when Hype Machine was being taken over by Spotify, really, which was the first streaming service that anyone, that I, that I saw any real success on. And I think one of, the, one of the things that really helped me with Akira was that I was in, I was in Mount Wolf and a lot of the curators at, at that time who have probably now left um, were, were big fans of, of Mount Wolf. So I would just email them and it was a lot easier to do that back then as well. Um, and they would respond to me. I, I'd be like, I'm in Mount Wolf um, and I'm also running this label. And I, I just built up a relationship like that. And Mount Wolf then got back together. Um, with a, we had a different singer. And, and then I sort of just, you know, was doing, was doing the two at the same time. And then more recently, Akira has definitely taken over and is, and is, um, is now sort of more my full-time job. So it's kind of reversed. 
Was Fourier your first sign-in? Yes. And they got to number two on Hype Machine, I think. How was that courting period process like when you were looking to sign them? How did that, you know, how do you convince a band, hey, I just started the setup, let me put out your music? Well, so whilst I was in, whilst I was in my wolf, I actually was working as a, as a scout at Psycho. Do you know the label Psycho? It's owned by Simon Cowell. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was primarily working. I met, I met an A&R scout there whilst promoting. And I think she realized that I had a lot of knowledge of like unsigned artists, really. And so I started sort of scouting at, at Psycho. But then my biggest job was actually scouting for the X Factor. Did you? Yeah. Which was a bit soul-destroying for me because I don't, I don't believe in the X Factor as a... Obviously, obviously, it's worked for like One Direction and Little Mix. And, and, but if you're an artist, if any artist that I have ever wanted to sign is not right for the X Factor. So the kind of artist that I really loved, part of my job was trying to persuade them to do the X Factor, which was just like, I, do, I, didn't, I didn't even believe in it myself. So, but I was... I was um, you know, it was a great opportunity, and I, 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 at the time, I met One Direction and Little Mix, and it was, it was fun. I was working at the Sony building. I met a lot of people through that. I remember just on my Facebook, I had, you know, I put Sony as, as my job, and that got me a lot of attention. I got a lot of, like, musicians adding me on Facebook. I think that kind of helped with my reputation in terms of, like, for, for new, new artists when I was starting Akira. It was... The fact that I was in Matt Wolf, Matt Wolf was a hype band at that point, and I had this sort of Sony connection, which a lot of people don't really understand the major label world at all, and they, and they just think it's quite sexy, and it's like, oh, wow, you work with Sony or whatever. So, I don't know, I, I guess, I guess Fourier at that point and their manager just took a punt on me, really, and, and I'm, I'm so appreciative of the fact that they did do that, because they were, the fir- they were my first real success, and then after I had success with Fourier, then it was then easier to do the whole, the whole courting thing. Yeah. Um, but I think at the end of the day, you've, I think I, I kind of look back and I think, well, how did I, how did I ever become successful at doing that? I think you've got to be good. You've got to have, you've got to be good at um, explaining your vision to somebody and getting them on board with it and charming them essentially. That's one of the, that's one of the qualities of being an A&R, isn't it really? Yeah, some say. <laughs> um, you've got, you've definitely got to, you've got to be a personable person, as as you said. Yeah, it does feel. I mean, that's why one of my, I think that's the hard part for me is like I never want to be a salesperson, which it somewhat is, to an uh-huh. extent. Yeah. Uh, um, and to me, it's, you know, I, it is. I think there is a part of music where it's like half commerce, half art, and it's trying to find that balance. To me, is what I put a lot of weight in, is finding yeah. that balance too. So, but so, did you find anyone for X Factor? Did you ever get? Not really. No, uh, they they did think that I had a a talent for spotting new artists, but basically all the artists that I found, like I actually discovered at that point, like JP Cooper and Elliot Ingram and uh, I think Rag and Bowman and a few other people. So there were definitely artists that I was discovering at that point while I was working there, who I passed on to my bosses who have gone on and become big artists. Um, But they just didn't want to, nobody really wanted to do the X Factor. But, you know, at that, 
then after working on the X Factor as a scout, I then worked as a music consultant on the show. And that was the year that James Arthur was on it. And I was just basically trying to find uh, cover versions on YouTube. And uh, the artists would then go on the show and do these versions that like, we had found on YouTube. And then the judges would be like, oh, I love your version of this. They would always make out that the, the artists had like, come up with their, with their own version of this song. Right. But in truth, it was just someone like me trying to find it on YouTube. That's, we could probably go on a whole episode about uh, the X Factor because I'm just intrigued by, like, would, if you had a contestant that continued, would you still be a consultant to them as the show went on? Or how does that, are you just purely at the beginning stages of the uh, scouting? Like, are you compensated as the, as the individual goes through the rounds? How does that all work? So anyone that, anyone that ended up in the last like 10 on the live shows, uh, I hadn't scouted. So I, had, I didn't have any direct kind of relationship with any of these people, but I did meet all of them, of course. And, and I became a consultant in, in the respect of, I would ask them what kind of artists they wanted to be, where they saw themselves, what, you know, who they compared themselves to and all, all that kind of stuff. And then we would then try and find them. First of all, we, we would think of songs that would be good for them. I was working with some big A&R guys as well uh, doing this. So that was, that was uh, the Simon Gavin, who, who is like the head uh, of, the, of the music at, at Psycho and, and, um, and of the X Factor in particular, had a, a very successful career before that and, and was a bit of a big dog in the, in the industry. And, and um, so I was working with him and, and, and every, uh, every judge had their own kind of A&R person working as well. So Simon Cowell had, had his own A&R person who was like finding the music. So when they, when they pretend that these judges like Simon Cowell and Nicole Scherzinger are like finding the songs of the artists, it's not true. They've got, you know, they've got an A&R guy. But yeah, so that's how it works. And, and then I was, just, I was just aiding those people really. But yeah. I, I, I started to, at, my, at that point in 2012, we had just released Life Size Ghost. And I was starting to... Um, just didn't really want to be there anymore. I didn't really want to be working at Psycho because it was, a, it was not only a major label, but like a, it signed TV. Right. You know, wasn't, it wasn't the kind of thing that I wanted to be doing at all. Um, so then, yeah, that was, I, I, start, I, started, I started releasing music in 2013. So it was shortly after I left Sony. I think, what, I mean, one of the reasons why I even ended up being successful is because of the change in the music industry, I think. The fact that streaming came in. Because I think like Network, Akira is definitely a streaming label. I'm sure, I'm sure Network probably had a few years trying to navigate through the industry when streaming was first becoming a thing because I just didn't see, you know, when, when we first started releasing music as Mount Wolf on Hype Machine, I just didn't see an avenue to make money whatsoever. It would just seem impossible. Well, it's interesting to say that because Network, you know, Terry has always been a visionary when it came to Network. He's the CEO of Network. Mm-hmm. And there's, if you go online, there are a couple of pieces of content where I think as early as 2001, 2002, he was talking about streaming being the future. Right. Um, and so that DNA was always in Network. Um, it was just about kind of getting through the times and, and kind of getting to where a point where streaming you know, is a bread and butter income source, which, which it kind of is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is interesting to, 
you know, look at how the industry has changed a lot, especially from from 2011 to now. I feel especially that, and you know, the I think I think the beauty of streaming and there's a lot of misconception in terms of the payout. You know, I think people just value a song. You know, this this idea of oh, you get paid 0.00 whatever uh, versus the 99 cents or the $18 an album was. I mean, that, that was just a different valuation altogether. But when I first started as a band in 2012, no one was buying, they were, they were just e- e- illegally downloading. Like right. we had success on SoundCloud and stuff like that. I mean, that was what you did. You uploaded music on SoundCloud. It went on high machine. We were making no money from that. I mean, you hoped that like those 500,000 streams on SoundCloud would then end up maybe being a thousand downloads or something on iTunes, but didn't, it rarely, rarely worked out that way. I mean, like Mount Wolf and Foria both had success on Hype Machine at that point, and, and we had, you know, half a million streams or whatever it was on SoundCloud, and we're, we're not making any money at all. Yeah. So, so when, when, um, when artists sort of moan about Spotify, I don't really understand it or get it, because in my experience, I wouldn't have a career. I wouldn't have a career in music if it wasn't for Spotify and Apple Music and all the streaming services. But um, yeah, if it wasn't for streaming, and yeah, people, yeah. people always go on about you know the the low payout or whatever. But yeah, and, and don't get me wrong. Like I I do want that payout for Spotify to grow as as Spotify grows, which mm-hmm. feels only fair that the people that are right in the music get that. But at the same time a lot of the people that are complaining about it is because they have a bad deal with their label. It has, you know, I think that's, that's a bigger issue here, Mm -hmm. especially the more legacy acts that probably didn't negotiate digital rights back in the day. Mm -hmm. And now at a point where they're fighting for their original PPD uh, royalty rate, and that's just such a, or maybe they even didn't even do it then, you know, and that's just such a, a fraction of a fraction of a fraction, which makes it even harder and who knows where they sit in terms of are they even in the black at that point you know mm-hmm. um, so yeah you know there's a lot to navigate in terms of that but it, it's an exciting time in the industry where anyone can go in that bedroom create an album at a really really high level of production put it out in the world and it could be the next big thing the only problem that i find or one of the challenges that i find now which in 2012, it felt, it felt almost easier. If you were really good, it felt easier. There would like be grassroots blogs and people talking about you. And suddenly, you know, if you have a song like Life Size Ghost for us at that point, things would just start happening for you. And, and there, weren't, there wasn't that much competition, really. There, I mean, there, there obviously has always been competition, but I just feel like there's, there's so much music now. I think, I think one of the reasons why, why we were selling out shows and things like that, there weren't that many hype bands that people were talking about. There were, there were a few, but like, I feel like now, I'm not sure that that would happen again. Maybe, maybe it would, but um, it's, hard, it's hard to get people through. You know, it's hard to sell tickets because there's so much competition. It's now hard to get uh, any support on blogs or, or Spotify or Apple radio, whatever it is, because, again, there's so much music. Because yeah. How much of that do you think is genre-driven versus music-driven? What do you mean? Like, for example, I think we all know that indie rock or rock in general is under-indexed on a lot of DSPs. Mm-hmm. You know, you have your SoundCloud rappers that do really, really well. You have certain genres that do really, really well. 
but genres like rock do not index in that mm-hmm. way. So it doesn't feel like it's across the board genre-wise, but really feels the particular genres that are winning at this time versus others. And it'll be very interesting to see how that kind of cycles. Like, for example, the 2010s, 2011s, we were coming out of that whole New York indie rock world that everyone like kind of lived in. And, you know, those, those bands were, were a lot more driven, you know, they had a bigger part to play in culture and music than I think now, for the most part. I think a lot of them have moved to legacy stands. So how much of that do you think now is genre and where do you see that kind of going? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, when, when we first started in 2012, Hype Machine was, was pretty much the driver and, and, and blogs to, to kind of getting success or getting talked about. And I, I started working with Auburn Brown. His music is very much acoustic folk music, which at that point in time, it was hard to get that away on SoundCloud. It wasn't, it wasn't like Mount Wolf worked because it was dream folk and it was like electronic mixed with folk music but sort of straight up folk music or acoustic music just wasn't really what the blogs wanted to be talking about and then suddenly fast forward a few years and then Alden Brown is now much bi- a much bigger artist on Spotify than, than Matt Wolf um, because well he's done very well with Sync and, 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 there's, and there's many reasons but I think a large part of that is because there's a big there's a lot of opportunities for acoustic music on Spotify. And I know this from working with artists on Akira who have got millions and millions of streams. Um, yeah, I think if you're writing a particular style of music, I think one of my, one of my bugbears, I think, with, with the way that streaming has impacted music is that I feel like people are now writing music for playlists. Yeah, uh, I, I think the idea of genres have changed into quote-unquote moods, right? It's like, what kind of mood can you create with this music, which has its pros and cons. But it's interesting that you bring up Almond Brown 2011, because I, I think... No, it wasn't 2011, it was, it, was, it was like 2013. Oh, okay, sorry. I think that was fatigue from Mumford & Sons. I think the folk name got so tied into what Mumford & Sons were doing that people were tired of it. Like, it felt like folk had that golden era, which was like that Mumford, the Lumineers, whatever crap, that, not crap, but you know, whatever that was. Uh, well, okay, whatever crap that was, no, but it just felt like everyone kind of just was tired. You know, it felt like that had a moment and just died. Like you immediately thought waistcoats and fucking hats. You know, it's like <laughs> literally it and a fucking pie. Yeah, yeah. You know, and 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 some some. You think you think some Mom fucking, ruined it for for everyone else at that point? Hundred percent. Yeah, and I think we're just coming out of that now. I think. Well, I think I think Spotify had a had a large part in in why acoustic music has become massive. But there are acoustic artists. I mean, Dermot Kennedy is is probably one of the ones that has actually become a a, a really massive artist and sort of come out of those acoustic playlists and is is um, a sort of a bona fide star right now and selling out shows and all the rest of it. But there's so there's so many acts that are, that are now really big and lo- lo- loads of labels are trying to sign that kind of music because they know that yeah. there are Spotify playlists which cater to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It's about moods now, isn't it? And one of the, thing, one of the reasons why I think Matt Wolf, with our de- development as a band, suffered a little bit is because we started writing more like post-rock. We started out doing sort of dream folk uh, pop and then, and then 
sort of pivoted towards uh, singer Ross sort of post rock, which just doesn't like doesn't playlist that well. So yeah, I, I, I've I've sort of seen I've experienced it um, firsthand. You know how how certain types of music will just will just do better than others. Yeah, as a as an A and R, I felt like I was very much on top of everything in 2013. I pretty much knew uh, most new bands, whereas now I definitely don't. Would you say yeah. the same thing? Hundred percent. I don't think. I think it's almost impossible to keep up with new bands. I, I think you know there's certain certain bands you hear about. There's certain bands that just go completely under your radar, and you'll never know. And, and they can be quite big as well. Yeah, the amount of times we've looked at an artist like you and I have talked about artists, go look at the page and we're like, how the fuck are they streaming this many numbers and no one's heard of them, you know? Yeah, and yeah. Or the similar thing of, of going and looking on Instagram and they've got 100,000 followers and you're like, who is this? Like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know who this person is. Yeah, I've never, that's, that's baffling. It's happened when you see people with like over a million followers. What, how, who are you? That, that, that makes me feel old actually. That, I mean, let, let's talk about that question. At what point does becoming an A&R an age become irrelevant? Is there a lifespan in an A&R? Do you think that A&Rs need to be young and with the times? Or what, what is your overall thoughts on, on you know, people in the 45s or 50s trying to sign 20-year-old bands? Is that something you see yourself doing? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um... I think as long as you're not a dinosaur, like I, I remember meeting A&R guys when I was in Matt Wolf, and I, I did feel like some of them were dinosaurs. It was just, it was sort of like, they didn't really understand Hype Machine. And I think as long as you try to make sure that you, you know, understand everything, all the changes in the music industry. Yeah, I've, I think as a young musician, I've, I've sort of been put off by, by older A&Rs, but it's only when, it's only when they've been showing their age i think because you know I've, i i was telling you that i was watching that clive davis documentary he i think he signed alicia keys when he was like 65 or something um and and then jimmy iving i mean he's now obviously gone into beats one but he was still killing it as an a and r when when he was probably i think maybe in his 50s so yeah i think i think i don't really know where i'm going to be when i'm when i'm 50 but i hope that I'm more successful than I am now. And then Akira as a name will, will still, will, will be a desirable label that people want to sign to. I mean, as I said, I, I, I still feel inspired by, you know, the likes of Clive Davis. I'm not necessarily comparing myself to Clive Davis because he's probably... Well, you did call yourself a redheaded Clive Davis is what you said before. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's like the most successful A&R guy ever. But, yeah. but... Um, I think if they're, if, they're, if they're still able to sign, you know, Alicia Keys at that point, and I think you can still spot talent. I think that my ears are becoming more commercial as I get older. Interesting. Yeah. I, I was pretty anti-pop music when I, when I first started in the music industry. Just thought that pop music was shit. And actually, I think pop music was probably better then, weirdly. Because, as I was saying about Radio 1, they keep playing throwback songs from about 10 years ago. But um, when, I, when I, you know, how Spotify does this thing every year where it tells you what genre you're listening to. Mm -hmm. uh, my biggest genre last year was pop. 
I think that was probably the first time that that was the case. Let's, let's, let's dive into this. What have you been listening to? What have been some of your top albums of the last year? Uh, I, well, honestly, I listen to my artists more than anything else, but I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of stupid. Like my top five artists are always like my, my, my artists. I, so sometimes I actually struggle to become fans of others, uh, other things I've noticed. I'm so absorbed in everything that I'm doing. Um, I've always loved Bon Iver and the National. I'm, I'm a very big fan of Coldplay, which seems to be a bit of a guilty, guilty pleasure. Some people think Coldplay are the, the uncoolest band ever, but I, I love Coldplay. Um, but new artists, I, I really like Lauv. Um, that's, probably, that's probably the pop thing that's coming out. Laney, I really like. It's difficult to say, though, because I, I have playlists of which I've got like 100 songs on it, and they'll, and they'll be all different artists. Mm. I think we're kind of living in an era where, and I've noticed this with my artists, like a lot of, a lot of people, like one particular song will be a lot bigger than the rest. They'll have that, so many listeners on that one song, and maybe that, maybe that doesn't convert to other songs. And I'm definitely one of those people. You know, I, I only know like one song of an artist that I'm a fan of. Would you say, would you say the same thing? I, I feel like genres become a bit more borderless, essentially. I think people listen to more and more music. But it's... Uh... I think the single sport is driven definitely, it's definitely much more driven than before. It goes back to my question, is it driven by mood or playlist? Like, you know, I think you're going to see a lot more streams out of the acoustic and folk genres, mm-hmm. but how many of those listeners are passive versus the pop and the other genres where they might have lower amount of streams or the rock genres, right? low amount of streams, but these same people are buying tickets for the shows. Mm-hmm. Hence why a lot of rock bands might only have 100,000 monthly listeners, but are selling out shows versus a band that has 50 million streams and can't even sell a show out, you know? Yeah, I, I, um, I, I sent you a, a thing earlier saying about how ridiculous playlists, how, 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 how much of an effect it can have. And I, yeah. I, I kind of got a bit... After a while, I got a bit worried about that with Akira because it kind of makes me think like, well, that's not, that's not that sustainable really, is it? Like if, if, you're, if you're only making money from songs that are added to playlists, then they, they get taken away from those playlists. So I, I kind of changed the way that I would look at things. Um, I still always sign bands that I love. I love, love, love the musical, but I'm, I think I'm now more interested in like, is this artist going to sell tickets? And are they going to sell vinyl at shows and um because that's sustainable isn't it that's yeah. i think you have i think you have to think about the playlist thing as well um particularly when you're a, a label like akira which makes a lot of its money through streaming you still have to think about that but i but i yeah i'm definitely i'm definitely conscious of the fact that i want to work with artists that are um compelling enough that that people want to go and buy buy tickets but it's a weird one, isn't it? You, it's, it's hard to gauge how successful an artist is now because some artists look massive on Spotify, but then in, in, in reality can't sell that many tickets. And then other artists sell, sell hundreds of tickets or thousands of tickets and don't really do anything on playlists. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the questions that we were going to ask on, on, every, on every sort of show, who's the most famous person in your phone? I have Moby's number. Mo- wow. Wow, that's pretty, that's pretty epic, actually. <laughs> how, how do you have Moby's number? I, that label loved I worked at. We were doing Moby's stuff, and I had his number because he played a show in Singapore, and 
I was meant to hang out with him there, but the show got canceled. But we did talk on the phone once for, I think I connected through an interview or something of that sort. Have you ever thought about reaching out to him? I have. Uh, then I decided not to. Were you going to ask him to produce an artist or something? What, what was the reason you were going to reach out to him? Uh, just to see if the number was active. Right, yeah. Oh, I have uh, Dan from Bastille's number. Oh, yeah. How did that I've happen? Te- I've texted him before. We went to Universal Studios once together. What? what? How? Uh, my friend put on shows and he needed, and this was like before I moved and he needed someone to, um, hang out with the artist and that wouldn't like fanboy over things. Right. So, so you um, were the perfect candidate. Yeah. So, um, so just you and just you and Dan Bastille went to Universal Studios together. No, it was a whole band. Oh, okay. How was that? Yeah, it's good. They're really sweet guys. Um, who else do I have? Mike Posner. That's pretty good. Christina Perry. I mean, the clients, pretty much. So you tell us about your lovely uh, Ed Sheeran. Well, yeah, the most famous person I have on my phone is Ed Sheeran. The problem is he doesn't have a phone anymore, so there's no way of contacting him. <laughs> oh, and right now. <laughs> no, yeah, number still works. We already tried this. I tried to text him one time after me and you were talking about it, and uh, it just didn't work. But... And there was a time when we used to text. I don't really have anyone else who's, who's, who's as famous as that. Nowhere near as famous as that. Um, ben Barnes, the actor that, yep. that we hung yep. out Six foot one, August 20th is his birthday. Yeah, yeah. One of my greatest uh, sort of LA moments. Or, um, <laughs> but um, I had just played at Soho House West Hollywood with, with Matt Wolf. And a friend of mine from Guernsey came to the show. And then she said, uh, so a bunch of the, so she's married to a Swedish songwriter. She said, a bunch of the sort of Swedish. Max? Sorry? Is his name Max? Uh, no, but um, she said, well, you know, a bunch of the Swedish songwriters are all having a party up the road. Do you want to come along? And I was like, yes, of course. Uh, and so I just, I went up to the band and I was just like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to head off for an hour and I'll, I'll catch you guys later. That was the night that they all started hanging out with Ben Barnes, actually, funny enough. Um, but we, uh, yeah, I, I went there and Max Martin was there. No and, way. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, he, that was, I think that's the most starstruck I've ever been because at music college, we actually studied Max Martin and kind of, he, you know, he's just pretty much the best songwriter of, of all time. And it was just like a god. And, and what was brilliant about it was that he, um, the girl who introduced me to him said, oh, you know, this is my friend from Guernsey. And he was really interested in Guernsey. So he sat down next to me and chatted to me for like half an hour and just asked me a bunch of questions about Guernsey. Wow. Um, so that, that was perfect for me because then it allowed me to then ask him questions. Yeah. Um, so what was he like? What was the public transport like? And you were like, what was it like writing for the Backstreet Boys? Well, I compared. No, I just asked him how he how he got into being a songwriter and what his process was as a songwriter. And he said, I remember him saying that he kind of treats it like a nine to five job. And and uh, now that he's got he's got family and everything, and and that's the most important thing to him. So you know, every day he he's he's sort of back with his family at six. He said in the nineties he was working all hours of the day, but he's sort of now treats it very much like a nine to five. Yeah, and he was just telling me about like a studio that he owns that like I think Marilyn Monroe lived in the house. They converted it into a, into a studio and she like lived there for a while in some really cool place in Beverly Hills. Um, 
But yeah, that was that was amazing meeting him. What's your most sort of LA story? Well, I was just thinking about this today. I uh, I met Machine Gun Kelly. Yeah. I just want to say he's one of like super super nice. Yeah. Very nice human being, which was expected. I see Usher around a lot. What? Three or four times at this point. Um, yeah. Have you spoken to Usher? Have I what? Have you spoken to Usher? I can't remember if I did. I think I said hi from afar because we were at lunch with Posner and Posner knew him and they said hi and I think he just pointed at us. Right. So that might have happened, but I can't remember. Um, you had dinner with all the cast from Crazy Rich Asians. <laughs> Not all the cast, a few of them. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're very sweet. Source Steven Gerrard at uh, Soho House. Oh, did you? Nice. That's, that's a good one. Yeah. That, I think the only time I would ever get starstruck really is athletes more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I met Lee Sharp. Do you remember Lee Sharp? Of course. Yeah. He was my favorite player, actually. I had Sharp on, written on the back. And then you had Sharp on the front as well. Yeah, I had Sharp on the front and Sharp on the back. Yeah. <laughs> um, Isn't there a Guernsey shirt? Um, there is, well, yeah, I should actually. Isn't there a Guernsey Guernsey and Jersey play a match every year, don't they? Yeah, the Moratti. How do you know yeah. that? Don't worry about it. I know my <laughs> football. <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh, and I know that... Is it Guernsey that has, hasn't won in a while, or is it Jersey? Which one? Wait, how, how do you know this? What do you mean, how do I know this? Who's, who are you getting this from? Don't worry about it. I have my sources. Who do you know from Guernsey? Uh, this is YouTuber named Chris MD. And he's from Guernsey, and he talks about it always. Chris MD? Yeah. How old is he? I don't know. Uh, I think he's from Guernsey. How do you know him? I don't. I just, he just talks about it on his YouTube channel. Oh, right. I see. And you follow him? Yeah. Oh, he's, he's got, got quite a bit of... He's got like 4 million followers. Oh. What? I don't know yeah. person. I think it's Jersey. I think it's... He's... I can't remember. It might be he's from Jersey, and then there's a guy in the Sidemen that's from Guernsey, and then they joke about it all the time, or vice versa. Oh, I didn't know this. Yeah. Fun fact. Holly said that we're going to be having dinner soon. Who just walked in? Did Holly tell you that she sent me a, a DM saying that she didn't expect my voice to sound like this? <laughs> Hi. It, I, I don't know, you just sound so American, it's weird. I know, it's shite. I didn't expect it. I, I love that she said that, like, literally, like, three months after we've met. I was just taken aback. It's because I could hear, like, your voice. I didn't actually know that it was you so you were speaking to. And I was like, who is, like, on the podcast? And, like, where's Samir on the podcast? And I was like, hang on a minute, that is Samir. I guess my voice sounded more fitting when we were sitting in Brooklyn yeah, on a random street. For the American accent, it was all she was also me. pissed. She was she was yeah. she was drunk when when she when she bumped into you. Yeah, I yeah. That, that's a cool hairband you have there, Stevie. Is it Holly's? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. He always steals them. This is actually now yours because you've ruined it with your yeah. head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
Shut the door, yeah. We should have Holly be on our podcast. Well, she's just made an appearance. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, anyone anyone who has listened to this first episode, thank you very much. Uh, it's been really good, actually. Uh, yeah, I've enjoyed it. I've actually been really looking forward to our chats weekly. Yeah, me too. Yeah, we've got we've got a few more to get edited and to go, so we'll have we'll have more coming out. Thanks so much for listening to our first episode. We hope you uh, found it as educational and entertaining as we did. Um, click the subscribe button if you would like to stay tuned as we have more episodes coming out. If you don't like it, well then, off. Oh. <laughs> Does that work? Yeah, yeah, perfect. Thank you.